So last week we kicked off a three-week-long teaching series, so we're going to be in it for a, for a minute, um, called Christ Our Life. We opened up the, the letter to the Colossians from the Apostle Paul, and we talked about how Paul was talking to a people that either one wanted to make Christ equal to many gods, and there we visited how Christ is supreme. He is above all. And then two, there was this temptation to add a set of rules to the Christian faith, to add too many pieces of Judaism to Christian faith, where Paul goes, no, not only is Christ supreme, Christ is sufficient, and you don't have to add to or take away from the gospel. In fact, if you take away from it or you add to it, it is no longer the gospel. So we kind of focused in on Christ's supremacy and sufficiency. And then we ended in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says, therefore, set your mind on the things above. If you're going to live into the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, if you're going to embody with your life what is already a reality in your soul, child of God, you have to set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth, okay? So child of God, if you want to embody the reality that is already taking place in your soul, that Christ is supreme and sufficient, there's some things that will help you do that, that will help your brain understand and your heart flourish in the thing your soul already knows. Christ is supreme. He is sufficient. And today we're going to sit in verses 5 through 11 where Paul's going to say, man, there's some things that you have to stop doing in order to understand the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And the next week, Paul's going to say, there's some things you need to start doing or continue doing to understand the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And I just want to preface, and I tend to over-apologize when I'm going to preach for a long time. And I just confess that that's kind of immature of me. As grown adults, I, I trust that we're here for the Lord. And so this is the one time I'm going to say it. I'm talking a long time today. This might be my longest sermon ever. And uh, I am currently actively suppressing my apology. I'm not sorry. <laughs> sorry. You know, like, so what I will need from you is, is for your buy-in. It's for your good. I 100% know that. I believe that. It's for your good. But it's going to take some lean-in. And when you inevitably doze off after like 25 minutes, it's okay. Come on back. Lean back in. Maybe God didn't want you to hear that, for that four-minute thing that you zoned out for, okay? Uh, maybe I was saying something heretical. Uh, all right. I want to start this conversation by talking about sugar. So excuse me while I step on every toe in this room. I love sugar. It's sweet. It's tasty. It's so enjoyable. It makes literally anything better. Cake, ice cream, candy, but it doesn't stop there. Ketchup, barbecue sauce, salad dressing. We use it for birthdays, holidays, get-togethers. For Halloween, we give six-year-olds half-gallon buckets and just tell them to go ham, go crazy. Fill that sucker up. Don't stop at 1,000 grams. Keep going, right? Oftentimes, sugar is how we cope. Sugar is how we relax. If you're a super Christian and you don't drink or anything, when you're with your friends, you turn up by going to Jenny's, you know? <laughs> Let's take this night to the next level. Five daughters. Hope they haven't run out of donuts yet. Oh, they run out too fast. Culturally, 99% of us grew up thinking that sugar was a normal part of everyday life, as normal as any other food. If you're like me, the only thing I really knew about sugar is that it can give you cavities, and I was like, I got a solution. I'm going to brush my teeth. I conquered the one negative effect of sugar. And it brings up this question, how can something with so much potential harm be culturally synonymous with happiness and comfort? And the answer is simple, because it's awesome. 
That's how. It's amazing. It makes us literally physically feel things. We feel happy. We feel satisfied. When sugar hits your tongue, it is perfect. It is incredible. I've never had bad sugar unless it was like stevia, you know? (laughs) This week, I listened to a a few talks around sugar. Someone that had experienced food addiction, listened to a neuroscientist and a doctor. I'm going to share some things I learned, so buckle up and prepare to be offended. But you don't need to be. I'm not coming at you. I'm really coming at me. There was this food addict named Laura. She was giving a TED Talk. Her dad had struggled with food addiction, and when she was in, I think she was like 18 or 19, she worked at a bakery, and she noticed like this this craving that she couldn't suppress. She wouldn't just eat like two or three cookies at a time. She would eat like 12 at a time. And she would start going through trash cans in the bakery, and she'd find half-eaten desserts and finish those off too. Yeah, she was like, I love sugar, and the crowd kind of giggled, and she said, but not in a cute way. I couldn't stop. And so she was like, why is this so strong in me? So she started to investigate, only to find out that in 2008, scientists proved once and for all that sugar was eight times as addictive as cocaine. I wonder if any food companies know this. Surely not, right? No way. If they know this, they'll change. Um, So she set out to change her diet. She started eating, quote-unquote, healthy foods, marked natural, organic, only to find out that you can think you're eating healthy, but your body knows the truth. You can't lie to your body. So she would eat these, quote-unquote, healthy foods. She found the same thing was churning up in her, the same craving, the same compulsive eating. And so she started doing something that 52% of Americans literally don't know to do. She started reading the food label. And there, if you've ever tried to go on a, like a, a health kick and started looking at food labels, I mean, it's actually pretty daunting how many healthy foods are just overloaded with sugar. I think uh, women are supposed to have like 27 grams of sugar or less on a daily basis. Men are 36 or less. If you're like me, you eat one dessert and you've doubled your daily amount and you're like, let's keep it going. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just getting started. Uh, she talked about how eventually she overcame and she broke her fruit addiction. But she said at the end of her talk, and this was kind of her, her walk-off moment, she said, My hope is that eventually everyone learns that real food is medicine and fake food is poison. It's like, wow, after you hear her testimony, you're like, that's pretty powerful. Listen to this neuroscientist. Her name's Amy. She explained how when you eat sugar, your brain releases dopamine. But your brain is smart. So that first time you get that sugar hit and you feel literal excitement and energy and adrenaline, Your brain gets used to that and creates more dopamine receptors. So in other words, 10 grams of sugar today is sufficient. 10 grams of sugar tomorrow is insufficient. She talked about the impact of sugar on your brain, and we're getting above my head here, but here we go. She talked about the prefrontal cortex. That's why I keep looking at my notes. I'm like, what did she talk about? (laughs) She talked about the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that makes decisions and doesn't develop fully until your 20s. She explained how through studies they've confirmed that sugar has real impact on rational decision-making and lesson learning as the brain develops. In other words, young adults that overconsume sugar are causing harm to their ability to think rationally and learn lessons. She talked about the hippocampus, the part of your brain that stores memories. Sugar literally inflames the cells in your memory center. Your brain cells malfunction. They stop performing. This showed up in memory tests. And not just in people who were overweight or obese, just anyone that overconsumed sugar, they struggle with the memory test. Damage to the hippocampus also disrupts how your gut tells your brain that you're full. In other words, if you keep eating sugar, you keep thinking you're hungry. You're not. You just think you are because your gut can no longer tell your brain, hey, I've had enough. And if you aren't aware of this, then you keep eating. And if you aren't aware that it's because of your diet, then what do you keep eating? So what do you keep perpetuating? It's a pretty crazy cycle. Last, she talked about neurogenesis. From now until you die, your brain creates new neurons. And those new neurons, they come out ready to fire. They're hyped up. They're like, let me help. They're sharp. It's good for you. The more your diet contains high sugar, high fat, the more neurogenesis slows down, just gets slower and slower and slower, and your brain stops creating these new neurons. And there is a, the lack of neurons 
being created is 100% connected to increased sadness. Isn't that interesting? The less your brain creates these neurons, the more sad you get. Fact. So you hear the cycle, eat sugar, feel good. Need more sugar to feel good? Damage to the prefrontal cortex and decision-making, learning, damage to hippocampus, memories, the hunger, full communication, damage to neurogenesis, more sadness. Lastly, Dr. Hyman talked about how the average American consumes 152 pounds of sugar per year, 22 teaspoons a day. The average child, 34 teaspoons a day. One out of every four teenagers is pre-diabetic or type two diabetic. He said this addiction is not an emotional eating disorder, but it will feel like it. Sugar and flour, they raise your blood sugar. They hijack your taste buds. They alter your brain chemistry. They alter your hormones and they alter your, uh, your metabolism. And the worst part about sugar is the more you eat it, the more you want it. Now, the good news is there's things you can do to help your brain and help your body from the attack of sugar. Three key things, eat whole foods, exercise, and sleep. All three of those things have been proven to help heal and restore the brain. However, none of those matter much if you continue drinking and eating the things that are going to war on your body and brain. Now, why am I giving you a TED Talk on sugar other than to bum all of us out at the same time? In my opinion, it's the perfect metaphor for our conversation today. If overconsuming sugar is bad, why is it so normal? Because it tastes good. Because it's immediately satisfying. It's something that we can have right here and right now, and it guarantees us to give us exactly what we came for. It is the ingredient of impulsivity and temporary satisfaction. And it completely lacks long-term vision. When you're overconsuming sugar, you're not going, how do I be a healthy and thriving 70-year-old? You're going, I just want sugar. I want it, I need it, I'm gonna do it. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. The context is Paul going, set your minds on Christ. Seek the things that are above. And just like if you're gonna start a good diet, it's not just about starting eating things that are helping your body. It's about stop eating things that are literally harming you. You have to stop. They're attacking you. They're not good for you. You've been lied to. It's bad. If we want to be healthy, not only do we have to start health, we have to stop unhealth. And today's conversation is about stopping unhealth. And there's two prefaces before we get, dig in here. First, I did not just say that sugar is a sin. Is that up there? Sugar's not a sin. I didn't say that. I'm not shaming nobody. No one eats more sugar than me, all right? Chill out. I eat a lot, okay? Well, not recently because of some stuff I've learned that I'll share with you five minutes ago. But uh, <laughs> I'm not saying that. So if anyone feels shame or feels insecure or anxious and you're like me and you go, man, if sugar's bad, my diet is in trouble. Dude, all of us literally are in the same boat. So no shame, okay? Just, just truth being talked about here. Number two, the conversation today cannot be about sin management. If you're like me and you grew up in a, in a legalistic kind of mindset, your walk with God is only as good as you're able to follow the rules. This conversation cannot be reduced to sin management. That would completely devalue and overlook the heart of God. When sin is only about right and wrong and doing what it takes to not be wrong, God becomes a cosmic rule maker that you better not cross. God is the creator of the human heart and the soul, and he knows exactly what leads to flourishing. And so like a good father, like a good parent, he refuses to sit idly by while his kids ignorantly do things that bring death to their soul. Does that make sense? <laughs> if that's gonna harm you, God will not hold back and going, you don't need to do that. It will harm you. So let's read Colossians 3, 5 through 11. You guys ready? We doing okay so far? Yeah, I know. I put sea salt in my water for the electrolytes. All right. <laughs> All right. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Context. Set your minds on the things above, right? This is to the child of God, alive in Christ, like good stuff here. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. He just had to start there, didn't he? God, what's so annoying. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once too walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So, we're going to talk about five anti-flourishing realities. Five anti-flourishing realities. They all share something in common. They feel satisfying and sufficient when you're doing them, and they all lack long-term flourishing. They bring death to your doorstep, all right? <laughs> Here we go. Lord, give us soft hearts. We live in a culture that always wants to hand responsibility off. Father, with soft hearts, open hearts, help us to just own some stuff and know that this is coming from a loving Father for our freedom. That's it. Don't let this conversation be sabotaged or manipulated by guilt or shame, all right? All right, sexual immorality. Any sort of sexual encounter existing outside of the sanctity of marriage not just sex, all forms of sex, Christian sex included. Well, it wasn't technically, that's included. The it wasn't technically sex, that's what we're talking about as well. Come on, I know you know. I know. <laughs> Let's talk through this. When it's midnight, you're with your person, Netflix, starting to feel more Netflix and chillish. You know, you've been making out longer than you've been watching the movie. In that moment, let's keep it real. What sounds more satisfying and sufficient, celibacy or sex? Which one sounds more life-giving and more reasonable? Think of the things that you'll think when you're about to cross the line. I mean, I really do. I love, I love this person for real. Like, I, I can see a future with them, you know? You'll say some of the dumbest stuff that you don't mean. Stuff like, I need to know that we've got this right before we take the marriage step, right? What are you even talking about? Irrational. Now join me in thinking of the lens of sex in marriage. Maybe you know someone that's married. Maybe they would attest to having a healthy sex life. I'd love for you to ask them, Hey, what's the role of sex in marriage compared to like dating? Let someone wiser than you explain the gift of sex, the language of sex. That believe it or not, sex is not always marked by lust and impulsivity. Let them tell you how sex can actually be a space where you serve the other person. Some of you are like, yeah, I bet. <laughs> You're ignorant. That's what I'm telling you. You don't freaking know. The way sex plays a role in marriage, please hear me, will not, it, I promise you all my heart, sex in marriage will not look exactly like sex in dating. They are completely different because sex was designed to be tied to the covenant of marriage. God is a genius. He figured it out for us. Otherwise, sex is too heavy or too confusing or too conflicting. Some of you, like me, know that being sexually immoral with someone outside of the promise of the covenant of marriage brings fear, pain, insecurity. That moment you realize that the relationship you thought was forever isn't going to work out, I promise you. It feels 10 times heavy, heavier because you feel physically bonded in a way that your lives are not bonded. You're leaving, but your body's already communicated, you're staying. And that breakup leaves at least one person, but more often two people that are scarred. 
wishing they had done things a little differently. This is why 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their body. Kind of that phrase, your body keeps score. It hits different. Those memories seem more permanent. You can much easier tap into the psychology and the emotions of those decisions years later. Sex outside of marriage is also primarily self-indulgent. Whether you're drinking with your friends, trying to get laid, watching pornography, or with your significant other that you swear you love, what's driving that sex drive? The main answer is, I want this for my sake. We wouldn't say it that way. It's not very poetic. It's true. Because every time that we have sex or do something sexual with someone outside the covenant of marriage, here's the truth. You're putting them at risk. Guaranteed. Because without covenant, I promise you this, it's way easier to leave. Just is. Leah was not the first girl that I thought, I think I could marry this girl. I married Leah. And if I could go back and make decisions differently for the other girls that I thought I might marry, I would. And the desire being fed in that moment is more than I want to make a wise decision that considers their future, not yours, theirs. What I really want is to meet this desire, this craving. It feels satisfying and sufficient to meet this desire for me. And I can sabotage it by saying it's about them and about us and our story and our heat and our compassion. But really, I just want to get this feeling met. And I promise you that whether through porn or dating or hooking up, that desire you're feeding, it cannot be fed in marriage. It's manipulated. And at some point, you will have to put to death a self-indulgent sexual desire. It has to die. I have friends who will testify right alongside of me, not separate of me, with me. Sexually immoral thinking and living outside of marriage will not stay outside of marriage. It will come right into marriage with you. If you make a habit of feeding self-indulgent, impulsive, sexual desire outside of marriage, you will 100% be tempted inside of marriage. It becomes much more accessible. So when Paul says, put to death in the most sexually immoral culture, put to death sexual immorality, guys, he's not shaming us. He's not trying to make you like feel all this guilt over your past. Lord knows I have one but he is trying to help you put to death what is anti-flourishing. God loves your body. He loves your soul. He loves your conscience. He loves purity of thought. He loves it for you. And he hates when Satan and your impulsivity and your addictions run through your mind and you can't can't even hold them at bay. They're so strong. Some of us, our bedrooms are like synonymous with like sexual captivity. And Paul's not trying to bring us shame here. He's going, there is flourishing available. And I can testify as someone who is sexually immoral. My marriage and my relationship with Leah was marked by purity or at least the effort to be pure. And in marriage, I felt healing and restoration. I had to go through some tears and through some scars, but there is healing available no matter your backstory, no matter how lost you feel right now and how much shame you feel right now. This conversation is for your flourishing, I promise you. And if anyone here is like, man, I hear you, I reluctantly agree that you're right, I need help. Please, please come talk to me. Talk to Gentry, talk to Amanda, to Taylor, to Muriel, to Luke. And if we can't quite figure out how to help you, we will get you with someone that can help you. Being held captive in sexual sin is a pretty damning place to be. It can feel pretty dark. You feel gross. You feel like you can't really do anything about it. Three or four days of feeling free, and then you're just back to it. Anyway, I love you. This is about flourishing. All right. Covetousness. 
Here's how I define it. You desire something to an extent that is regardless of God, others, or godly wisdom. You want something to an extent that your open-handedness is gone. It consumes you. You need it to the extent you feel incomplete without it. The desire for it is out of control. We live in a world that has invested billions of dollars creating the technology to target the part of your brain that makes you feed the desire. Before you check your bank account, before you go, now hold on, let me take a day to think about it. It's already on your front doorstep. Our culture rewards coveting. It satisfies the craving immediately. Have you ever wanted something so bad, it was all you could think about? Whenever you slowed down long enough and your thoughts drifted to wherever they drift to, it was always that thing. Whether a job, a shirt, a person, a season of life, a place to move to, your mind was hijacked. And in that moment, what was not in your thoughts was 1 Timothy 6.6. Contentment plus godliness is great gain. The greatest thing you can have is contentment and godliness. You do not need anything else. Literally before that, Paul goes, if I have food and shelter, I'll be content. We're all over here in 2023 like, yeah, right. Well, what kind of house is it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where'd the food come from? This is the consequence of a coveting spirit. And what does a life of coveting create? You are marked, hear me, by the desire for what? More. Can you ever fill the desire for more? That's infinite. And it's fueled by greed and self-indulgence. A life consumed with the next thing you need to get that dopamine hit, to feel satisfied. Do you know how hard it is to be a selfless person when you routinely reward a coveting spirit? Do you know how hard it is to embrace the sufficiency of Christ's love and presence on your soul when you routinely need more to be satisfied, when that's the messaging you continually give your brain? If I order this, I'll feel happy. If I order this, I'll feel happy. If I buy this, I'll feel happy. If I get this, I'll be happy. If they'll do this, I'll be happy. If I move here, I'll be happy. If I get this job, I'll be happy. Always a contingency on you feeling whole. So Paul says, put it to death. You will never be satisfied if what you need is more to be satisfied. Let's talk about anger. We know anger's bad. You guys still with me? We're almost halfway through of this part of the sermon. <laughs> Not sorry. Not sorry. Uh, <laughs> we know anger's bad. And of course, on a Sunday morning, when it's nice and calm, unless you're mad at something I've said already, which is probably likely... <laughs> But like right now, how dumb does anger sound? Like think about being mad in traffic right now. You're like, you know what? Being mad is so stupid. I'm, I'm not going to be mad anymore. You know, I'm just I'm so foolish. Okay, so the light's still red. God is good, you know? Now think about when you're really mad. Doesn't it feel good? Does anyone else have that, uh, I'm a nice person in general, but like if someone pushes me too far, you know, like I'm pretty patient, but like when someone does this one too many times, then I'm gonna, you know, I realize I had this narrative about me. I don't know why I had this in me. It's very real. This is raw. Respect the rawness here, okay? But like I had this thing that was like, I'm going to keep it cool until one day, like that 817th person doesn't use their blinker. And then I'm going to go super saiyan and unleash the anger of 10,000 sons on them. You know, guys, do you know how good I am in externally processing? I'm so good at words. I could use 10,000 words and just shred someone. Every insecurity that I think they may have, just 
you know, anger is amazing. Like when your blood is boiling, what sounds better? Peace like a river or verbal bloodshed, you know? Some of you got frenemies and roommates, spouses, kids, a boss, a coworker, and you're so mad, you've been practicing in the mirror what you're gonna say to them when it comes time. I don't think it's actually true, but I just, I love the thought of us practicing in the mirror, you know? Oh, well, let me tell you this, you know? But you know what this is like. You've got these thoughts that run in your head. Oh, I hope they push me. I hope they push me. Now, let me ask you this. What is a life driven by anger look like? In the moment, it might feel amazing to punch a wall, to throw something, to scream, to yell. But what is two decades of giving into your impulsiveness to be angry look like in your friends, in your family, in your mind? Not just your actions. Think about anger in your brain. The peace and wisdom of God is forever stunted in a heart that gives into anger on a regular basis. James 1 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And let me say this, to be righteous is to be free, is to feel pure in heart and mind. Righteousness is amazing. And James says, if you got anger issues, you're stunning. You're stunting that righteousness. So put it to death. If anyone wants to talk about anger and commiserate together, I'm ready. I got anger issues. Slander and obscene talk. Whether we're talking gossip or vulgarity, I want to talk about the tongue. I've realized something. Our world is riddled with bad language. And I don't just mean like cussing, which I guess counts, just because of the connotations of cuss words, culturally speaking, we can get into like words later. But I'm just talking language in general, vulgar language, sarcastic language, cynical language. If you ever wanna be reminded of the potency of words, read James 3. The tongue is like a small little flame that starts a huge forest fire. Ever seen those California or Colorado fires on the news? You're like, wow, that is massive. How does that start? With a flame, that's it. Tens of thousands of acres. Let's dig in. You ever talked about someone else behind their back? And you're not even like lying. You're telling the truth. <laughs> like, I didn't lie. I don't even think that's technically gossip. How good does it feel to just get it off your chest with a trusted friend? And for both of you to agree that you're right, that person sucks. <laughs> like, they're immature. They'll get it together one day, seriously praying for them. But like, as of now, yikes. They need help. They need, probably need counseling. Yeah, they probably do. It feels so good, don't it? You don't have the courage to go talk to them one-on-one? -on -one? to confront them like an adult. You don't have the compassion to pray for them. Pray for them until your heart falls in love with them and begins rooting for them. Instead, you settle by talking about them to a trusted friend. God has called me out on this one. I confess, I've gossiped to Leah. I didn't think that was possible. I was like, marriage, that is the safest place for all secrets. Say whatever you want. I literally thought that. And I've learned in the past four years, that's not true. I have created negative thoughts in Leah's brain about other people. And God has slowly taught me that is not right. That is sin. You're talking about my image bearer to your wife of all people. Congrats. He didn't say congrats. I, I said it to myself. <laughs> what does a life of gossip result in? People begin to understand that you are more than willing to talk about others when they're not around. You need to know that. Your closest friends that you gossip to, they know you talk about people. And if you get in an argument with your closest friend, will they trust you to not go talk to someone else? Why wouldn't you? You probably will. Also, those relationships you complain about and gossip about, you are cutting off 
any hope of reconciliation. You're cutting off your own growth that would come from confronting someone. You're cutting off your, the, the friendship itself. You know, friendship grows when you're willing to be honest. That's not a bad thing. And if you are accurately assessing someone's immaturity or, 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 or lack of being a, a cool, good person, by refusing to talk to them, you are cutting off their chance at growing. They may not know that about themselves. And you're over here in your arrogance talking about them when they can't hear you. Man, I hope people don't do this to me. There is plenty to talk about. You cannot love your enemy and gossip. You cannot. What about vulgar language? I'm going, this is just, I guess this is just all my tangents. These have just been running in my brain. You guys stick with me. We're all, come on. Let's, mm. How many sexual innuendos exist now? I kid you not. I literally get nervous preaching. And I want to make a joke about it, but it breaks my heart. I go and listen to my podcast to make sure I didn't say something about the father that could have been turned into a sexual innuendo. That breaks my heart. I'm not going to go too hard on this tangent, but I believe that Satan has worked his way into the fabric of our words. And it becomes more and more difficult to have uninterrupted, authentic, wholesome conversation. It starts out with, that's what she said on The Office, which I think is one of the funniest jokes of all time. <laughs> it's immediately satisfying. But if you're like me, and you started hunting the sexual innuendo jokes like that, not the super vulgar ones, but like the, you know, those, with your married friends, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you watch the slow growth of it, and then you're like, you know what, it's hard to get through a genuine conversation without wanting to make a joke now. And this person's telling me real things, and it's hard for me to focus because that was kind of an innuendo right there. So obnoxious. What about sarcasm? Sarcasm's fine. But a, sarca but a, a culture of sarcasm, it lacks encouragement, optimism, honesty, transparency, and depth. At some point, a culture of sarcasm, 100% is toxic. It is not healthy and is not good for you. In my head, guys fall prey to this more than girls. I don't know. But for some of you, your friendships would change if you would cut your sarcasm by 60% and replace it with intentional and uplifting conversation. I talked to a guy that just got saved, was an atheist, just got saved a few months ago. Talked about his friend group. Like, my best friend for six years, I told him I loved him. He couldn't say it back. We've never had an in-depth conversation. I've been saved for two months, and I say I love you to all my friends that are Christians, and they all say I love you back immediately. He said, I have more, more in-depth conversation. I've had more in-depth conversation in the last two months in, in six years of friendship with these guys. It's like, we all swim in this culture. It's no judgment on them. It's like, that's all of us. We swim in this culture. We want to stay shallow. Go for the jokes. Keep it lighthearted. All the while, our maturity is at stake. There is more depth to your friendship. Some of your marriages are marked by sarcasm and tearing each other down lightheartedly. But when you keep doing tearing down lightheartedly, does it stay lighthearted or does it become the narrative of your relationship? Your words are weapons for good or for bad. If words can set fires to forests, they can also bring healing to relationship. Your words can restore and can build up positive, encouraging words over the long haul. You will watch people mature and grow in confidence and maturity. I've seen people change with just five years of just consistent, positive reinforcement over their life. Use your words to bless others. Maybe for this week, more importantly, are you using your words that promote cynicism, gossip, Negativity, slander, void of wisdom, compassion. Take it seriously. Do not let your words bring death, even if they come across as lighthearted. Lastly, don't lie to one another. The first sin recorded in Scripture starts with a tempter who is deceitful. Satan, the father of lies. Lies are anti-God. Proverbs 6 says God hates lying other than for a surprise party or engagement. All right, you got me. Sure, I guess it's fine. God, help them, I don't know. The truth is, you hate knowing when you're not being honest. You don't like it. It slowly erodes your self-confidence. 
and your hope of having a genuine relationship. I don't know why we lie. Maybe you're like me and you just talk too much without thinking and then you say things you don't mean, so I guess you kind of lied. As an external processor, I'm a professional at that. Accidentally saying something I didn't mean. Four minutes later, I'm like, hey, actually, can I redact four minutes ago? I no longer mean it now that I've thought through it. Or maybe instead of lying blatantly like, hey, that's red when it's really blue, maybe what you do is you manipulate. Instead of being slow to speak and honest and humble and transparent, thinking about the other person's perspective, you know you're good with words, so you sabotage the conversation. You assert your dominance and power as if the conversation is a battle to be won. Little do you know, if you would be slower to speak, humble, honest, transparent, kind, you would experience friendships and marriages that are far more whole and full of life and healing and joy. For some reason, I feel compelled to talk to dating and marriages as I'm talking through all this. Couples in this room, how are you using your words? How are you communicating with one another? When you are angry, are your words weapons? Are you slow to hear? Are you slow to be compassionate? Are you slow to lower yourself as Christ did for his disciples when he washed their feet? Christ loved the world so much, there was no low that was too low. Please know this, Christ lost for us. Couples, lose. Hey, couples, lose. Lose the argument. Win for the marriage. You do not need to be right. You do not need to assert your dominance. I don't even know who I'm talking to right now. I just feel this in my heart. I know how easy it can be to berate the other person because they've hurt you, because you think they're stupid because you think you're a genius. And so quickly, the agenda becomes, I need to win this moment instead of care for the heart of the person looking back at me that loves me. I don't know, pray about that if you're dating or married. All right, this was a lot, wasn't it? That was heavy. And what's worse is we just talked about a lot of things that every single one of us actually struggles with. You know, it's like, man, that was heavy, but not for me. It's like, that was heavy and all of them, all of them were for me. <laughs> just melt onto the floor. So again, I remind us, what's the context? You're alive in Christ, child of God. This is not sin management. Colossians 2, every legal demand on your life was nailed to the cross. This is about a good father refusing to let things that mean harm for you go unspoken. Thank you, God, for calling the things that mean harm for me to light. This is about God going, hey, put the things to death that long to bring death to your doorstep. What's so cool is in Hebrews, it says that we have a high priest, Jesus, who sympathizes with us in our weakness. That he's been tempted in every way. So if you're like me, and on the way to church today, you were confronted with your own sinfulness, a selfishness that feels so you, it's like barely even sin, it's just you. God is not looking at you going, how could you be so selfish? How are you so dumb? Why can't you get this right? God's looking at you going, hey, I know. I know. It's why I died. 
It's why I nicknamed my spirit the helper and the comforter. So that when you come face to face with your inability to do it just right, you would fall right into my arms and you would discover my love is greater still. <laughs> That's what you'd learn. <laughs> Good news for those that fall really far, the farther you fall, the more you understand how deep the grace of God is. <laughs> There's some bonuses to it. In 2023, I want you to flourish. As we set out on this new year, my prayer is that for some of you, there's sin that you've never been able to get over and that on December 31st of 2023, you look back and went, my goodness, I, th I think, I think I'm moving on from that thing that I felt was tied to my identity. Whether an addiction, a character trait, how you treat your spouse, greed, lust, whatever it is. But the truth is, I don't believe this will happen without us taking responsibility. I was talking to a counselor several months ago and they have this phrase called adult responsibility. It's funny that we need phrases for these things now, but we, he's literally telling them we have to teach, teach adults how to say, this is my responsibility, not someone else's fault. We are professionals at distributing responsibility for our own sins. So what I wanna invite us to do is to take responsibility. It's okay. I know I'm a sinner and I know you are. So we're good. We're already in that bubble. So we're cool. So I want to invite us into four rhythms. This is really just one big rhythm, but here's four words. It'll be easy. Well, simple. Reflect. Psalm says, search my heart and know me. God, I want to flourish in you. I want to see the things that are above. I want to see the ways of Christ, live in the ways of Christ. That requires me to reflect. Search my heart. What am I doing that is anti-flourishing? That is not just sin against me or other people, but God, first and foremost, it is sin. It is sin. It is sin against you, God. I have sinned against you. Don't mean to. doesn't matter. It's sin. If I slap someone by accident, okay, weird metaphor. Let's move on because that's not really a possible, you know, anyway. That was funny to me, but I know we're in a serious spot. God, are there anti-flourishing ways in me? What are they? And I want to encourage you, do not hold back. Be relentlessly honest. Some of you right now are sinning against someone else, and you're going to start thinking about it. And before you get to confessing it, you're actually going to start blaming them again. Stop blaming them. Look to your heart. And I would encourage you to write it down. Put words to it. God, I am very selfish. And I refuse to bring my excuses. I'm just a selfish person. That's a true statement. I'm selfish. I guess I've moved us into the second one, confession. Whenever you need to say it, whenever you think of it, tell God explicitly what it is. In full truth, don't hold back. First John says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us. We've got this incredible guarantee from a holy, perfect God. There's nothing you can confess that God won't forgive. So if guaranteed forgiveness is, is here and all we need is heartfelt confession, then let's confess. Lord, here's my weaknesses. Here's my one weakness. Here's my 17 weaknesses. I confess them. Number three, receive. This is a critical part of the process. Only when you've been relentlessly honest in confessing real sin to the Lord with a genuine heart, then you receive, thank you, Jesus. I know I'm forgiven because of what you've done. You earn this, so I don't have to. Thank you, Christ, that in your dying breaths, you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Forgive them. And then number four, repent. Repenting's the hard one. That's where you go, I am going to change. And I'm going to begin directing my thoughts and my actions toward changing. Romans 6 says, what shall we say then? Shall we sin more so that grace can increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Plan to change. Get as practical as you need to. I got, at different times, I've got sticky notes in my car, pieces of paper taped to my bathroom mirror. I got a prayer closet with a dry erase board that is pure chaos with things that I'm like, man, here's some things, God, that I don't want to forget. I need to see them with my eyes so I can walk toward freedom. You can't fake repentance, so I would encourage you, repent. Make changes so you can experience the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. My prayer, December 31st, we look back and go, man, on January 15th, I wrote some things down, and I really gave my heart to it. And lo and behold, I've walked out of the mud with Jesus. I found freedom. So I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna give us, like, I'm gonna give us 10 minutes, which is a long time when you're sitting quietly. I can't make you do this. Ask God to search your heart. What are the things that are holding on to you that you need freedom from? And trust that Jesus, he can walk you to freedom. God, I pray for, well, one, Lord, thank you. Thank you so much, Father, that you do not leave us wondering what brings us harm. You don't leave us questioning like, man, why, why am I struggling? Why are my friendships struggling? Why do I feel trapped? Why do I? You make it clear. You make it plain as day. You have got to put these things to death before they bring you death. Father, I already know if anyone's like me that today's word met a bunch of stubbornness. I'm such a stubborn, I, I can be. I'm not gonna speak that over myself, but I can be such a stubborn person a hard heart, refusing to listen and learn. Thank you for the promise of a soft heart, for the healing of a soft heart, willing to confess our weakness and then find our strength in you. So God, help us, lead us, show us where we need you, show us where we need to confess things and to name them plainly for our own sake, that we can walk toward freedom with you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.